Hey. Good morning, everyone. Four years ago, our family, we moved to the neighborhood here, down in the downtown east side, and we came from the Riley Park neighborhood, a little further up, Main and 28th. And so coming to this neighborhood, there was some, uh, it was different. It was a different neighborhood, different uh, vibe, I guess. And so there's lots of learning that's occurred over the last four years of what it means to be in the downtown east side. And early on, we had conversations with our kids as we'd go uh, for walks, and they would ask, why, Dad, do people yell so much on the street? Why are there people sleeping? Uh, why are there people fighting on the street? And I didn't know really what to say, and so I asked my friend Peter Legrand, who's uh, been in the neighborhood for a long time, I said, Peter, what do I say to my kids um, about the downtown east side? And he said, say this. He said, most people, if they're, uh, even if they have a place to live, if they're in an SRO, it's one bedroom, it's very small. And so the street is like everyone's living room. And so people uh, on the street do what everybody who has a living room does in their living room. And that includes fighting and laughing and making love and napping and uh, reconciling and uh, eating and all of those things. Uh, and I said, that's, that's really good. And so I shared that with my kids. And so those of you who are from this neighborhood, perhaps those of you who either live on the street or have a lot of time on the street, you know this better than anyone, that both the beauty and the pain of the downtown east side is that the inside gets taken outside, right? The inside's outside. Sometimes in other neighborhoods, it's just you don't really get to see the inside because there's walled gates and there's triple car garages and there's alarm systems and there's middle class privacy guarding the inside. But the beauty and the pain of the downtown east side and really what it has to teach us is about the inside becoming outside, which relates to what we're reading in the Sermon on the Mount and why Jesus is so difficult. I don't know if you've been around the last couple weeks, uh, but they haven't really been matching the summer vibe. Heavy material, as we've been looking at anger and lust, and really heavy things in uh, the heart of a human. Jesus takes the stuff that usually remains inside, and he's bringing it outside, and so it's uncomfortable, but also, I think, beautiful. The place, as we've noted, that Jesus starts is all about relationships, so fiercely committed to relationships, and the stuff that tends to end them, corrode them. Uh, and so he focuses on these little things because these little things never stay little. And so just a quick review. As we looked at anger, Stephanie reminded us that uh, Jesus here is not confronting anger uh, per se, but what he's taking issue with is a deep-seated anger that gets fixated on that gets obsessed over, that gets nursed. And that, that little bit of anger can grow. And, and so there's a, a word of warning. Be careful that your anger doesn't devour you or another person. And Steph gave us a really good summary, uh, and that was the word contempt. Okay, so that's the little thing Jesus is, is wanting to bring from inside to outside. The first one is contempt. And last week, then, we looked at lust. And Ben helped us see that Jesus is not taking issue with being sexual or uh, repressing desire, but rather uh, he's confronting lust, which is the disordered desire to have or to use a person to fill my own emptiness. It's about objectification. It's using a person to, for my own gratification. And so a summary word for that could be consumption. When relationships start moving and start getting overtaken by these two little things, contempt and consumption, they never stay little. They always escalate. And we've talked uh, over the last couple of weeks, but it's, it's an important thing to keep bringing up uh, in our cultural moment, the, the Me Too conversation. The, the Harvey Weinsteins and others, where there's a reckoning, there's an exposure of men 
uh, who have, the, the, there's, and there's all kinds of themes, whether it's sexual assault or abuse, misogyny, sexism, things that have been hidden are being exposed and brought open. And there's, there's kind of this question of like, how did this happen? You know, how did this, how, how, did, how does uh, Harvey Weinstein, how does that happen? Well, it, it starts with two little things, <laughs> content and consumption, and they always go, they always go here, objectification and oppression. That's where they lead. And so this Sunday, we're looking at all of this, because I think the genius of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, there's a trajectory here, and we're looking at divorce this Sunday. So a couple words on divorce, uh, just really quickly, uh, there's many layers here, many, many Layers, and we probably could all share experience of how we have been touched by divorce, whether that's our own, uh, perhaps that's one of our parents, our grandparent, a uh, close friend, um, whether that's in the past or very much in your present, uh, we could all share stories. And perhaps some of us, we could say, yeah, my family tree is, is really marked by a whole series of broken limbs. So, there's pain here, and want to acknowledge that. Tread carefully and have grace for one another. I'd like to ask you for grace with me as well. Um, often that pain is described by people who are either have gone through it or in it, the pain of divorce, usually phrases like hell on earth or uh, that was a living hell. And then there's the other layer of pain that often gets added on by people like me, doing what I'm doing here, and that is uh, preachers holding up texts, particularly the one we're looking at in Matthew 5, that have been used against people, <laughs> that have, have uh, been brandished in, in causing more pain. And so this morning we're talking about divorce and marriage and remarriage and singleness and all of this mixed together, and we bring our experiences in. Uh, another quick word. The preamble is going to end uh, probably 15 minutes, but uh, another quick word here just, just to those of you who are single. Uh, this last Mother's Day, as we honored uh, the experience of our mothers, which I was quite a, uh, very eager to do, uh, this particular Mother's Day, uh, it was tweaking me about uh, our singles. I thought, when do we have Singles Day? When does the church do that and honor the experience of those who aren't in a marriage or who aren't a mother? Like, when does that day happen? Uh, and I don't know. Uh, it's not on the calendar, and maybe it should be. And so I just wanted to say at the front of a, yet another moment where the church is talking about marriage to our singles, I see you, and I would like to hear you. So here, we'll, we'll create an event, but Thursday, June 21, 8 p.m., my place. And if you're, if you're not single, don't, you can't come, okay? It's a very, very exclusive event, okay? Um, but here's, here's what I would like. I want to know what it's like to be single in the city these days. I've been married 16 years. Uh, when I was dating, I didn't have any dating game. I have way less now. I need to know what it's like to be single. I also would like to know what it's like to be single in a church with a lot of families and a ton of kids. I want to know what that experience is like and anything else you want to share. So I'll bring the food and the drink, and if you'll bring the stories, uh, I'd love to meet with you June 21st, 8 p.m. Okay, preamble part three. Uh, I, and I always make this joke as a preface to a long quote that it's a buzzkill to a sermon. Don't share long quotes. I'm only sharing two quotes this morning, and one of them is very long, but it's by Wendell Berry. And if nothing else, this can just give you a chance to pause and come to terms that we're talking about divorce. I like this one because there's a bit of snark here. Kind of two visions of marriage. So Wendell, marriage in what is evidently its most popular version is now, on the one hand, an intimate relationship involving ideally two successful careerists in the same bed, and on the other hand, a sort of private political system in which rights and interests must be constantly asserted and defended. Marriage, in other words, 
has now taken the form of divorce, a prolonged and impassioned negotiation as how, to how things shall be divided. During their understandably temporary association, the married couple will typically consume a large quantity of merchandise and a large portion of each other. The modern household is the place where the consumptive couple do their consuming. Nothing productive is done there. Such work as is done there is done at the expense of the resident couple or family and to profit the profit of suppliers of energy and household technology. For entertainment, the inmates consume television <laughs> or purchase other consumable diversion elsewhere. There are, however, still some married couples who understand themselves as belonging to their marriage, to each other, to their children. What they have, they have in common. And so to them, helping each other does not seem merely to damage their ability to compete against each other. To them, mine is not so powerful or necessary a pronoun as ours. And this sort of marriage usually has at its heart a household that is to some extent productive. The couple, that is, makes around itself a household economy that involves the work of both wife and husband, that gives them a measure of economic independence and self-employment, a measure of freedom, as well as common ground and a common satisfaction. You still there? Okay, so two... Two visions here of marriage. Experience often, I think this relates to, of course, to divorce. And so we're talking about all of this. We're talking about marriage, divorce, and love, and how it can be so confusing. As Michael Scott once said, Would I rather be feared or loved? Easy, both. I want people to be afraid of how much they love me. <laughs> Let's pray. <laughs> we pray for grace this morning as we, consider, uh, as we consider love and we consider all of us are entangled in it in the absence of it, the longing for it. Some of us, even this morning, uh, would say I'm in a marriage that's kind of in that first part of the description. Uh, some of us are, would say our marriages are on life support. Some of us want to be in marriages. Some want to get out of them. And we come as your mixed assorted, needy people this morning needing to encounter what's true, needing to encounter the faithfulness that we sung about this morning, but needing not just to sing it, but to uh, receive it and to be open to it. So we pray for that in Jesus' name. Okay, here we are, Matthew 5, 31. Jesus, these are the words of Jesus. It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce, but I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality makes her the victim of adultery, and anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. And so here, Matthew 5, 31 to 32, we've got just three little phrases, a very, very short vignette. Um, from Jesus, and we get a, a bit more of an expanded teaching in Matthew 19, which we'll look at in a few moments. But just a, a few things I think is really, really important to, to, uh, to get uh, in order to handle these difficult words of Jesus. So the, the word divorce, just to clarify what we're talking about, means to loose or unbind from or to send away. Uh, he, in this, in the Greek, it's less of a mutual parting, but uh, of one unbinding, of one unloosening or sending the other away. It's also key to note that what Jesus is doing here is he's quoting Moses. When he says, you have heard it said, and, and uh, that little phrase that he uses then is he's quoting Deuteronomy 24, which is really important. So in the ancient Near East, this is 3,000, 4,000 years ago, uh, we, we have to understand this context. Ancient Near East, uh, men pretty much had total control over women. Highly patriarchal society, and so that if a man felt that uh, he, had a, he had a right to divorce his wife, he could do so for any reason which creates major social chaos. And so if the husband sends a wife away, that woman would have no rights, no dignity, no provision, no protection. And so within a patriarchy like this, when a wife is cast out of the tent, out of the tribe, 
when, when a woman is divorced in the ancient Near East, she is sent away with nothing. And so this is a single woman in a barbaric world with no way to provide for herself. And so then, in Deuteronomy 24, Moses comes in, he acknowledges the reality of divorce. Well, that's good, but that it happens. And there's an attempt here to mitigate the effects of divorce, particularly on women. So what Deuteronomy essentially, 24 is essentially doing is this. If divorce goes down, here's what I want you to do. You need to give a woman a certificate of divorce. And you may be thinking, oh, that's nice. Like, whoop-dee-doo. Uh, real, real considerate. But giving a, considerate, uh, giving a certificate was actually a big step forward at the time. So the uh, certificate would discourage the easy passing of women from man to man. Uh, it, would, it would discourage the treating of a woman as a piece of property. And Deuteronomy 24 actually elevates the status of women. How? Well, there's protection. There's recognition. A woman has legal rights. And so by giving this certificate of divorce, she could prove that she's no longer bound by her husband. More or less, she's available, which is important because remaining single in the ancient Near East, unless you're independently wealthy, which really I don't think was an option for many women, uh, remaining single, uh, uh, there's such high vulnerability there. So the certificate protects her from further exploitation and protects and guards a woman's vulnerability in a patriarchal society. So Deuteronomy 24 is an anti-oppression text, albeit a very ancient one. Now, we fast forward to Jesus' day. 50 years before Jesus comes on the scene, there are these two great rabbis who are mega huge. That's how the, uh, the writing about them talked about them, mega huge. Uh, and they had their own two schools of disciples, and they completely dominated Jewish thought. You had Hillel and Shammai. And Hillel was a bit more of the permissive, maybe a bit more of the loose rabbi. And Shammai was a bit more restrictive, a bit more narrow. So Halal, maybe a little more liberal. Terms aren't really helpful, but Shammai, a little more conservative, more or less. And so you had the house of Halal, house of Shammai. And of course, these two had differing interpretations of Deuteronomy 24. What do we do with this text? And at that time, this was a raging, just hot button theological debate. And the debate was over this one phrase. If she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found in her something indecent. That little phrase. In Hebrew, it's ervath devar. Ervath devar. And it literally means, this, this isn't going to sound helpful at first, but stay with me. Ervath devar means nakedness of a thing. Okay, well, you, you start to understand why they would argue so much and go back, oh, nakedness of a thing. And what does that mean? Well, Halal stressed devar. Devar means thing or something. And that was where he wanted to put the, the emphasis, something, anything. And so Halal's interpretation was an anything divorce. If your wife burns your food, Halal would say, grounds for divorce. He focused on uh, Devar. How, how is all the chauvinism feeling so far this morning? Are you bristling? I am. Uh, and, and then Shammai emphasized Ervath. And Ervath means nakedness or indecency. And so the emphasis was uh, you, you can't divorce unless the woman has had an affair, unless there's adultery, unless there's indecency. So you've got these two schools. And at the time of Jesus, Hillel's interpretation was the majority view. That was the dominant view. That a man could divorce a woman for any reason. And so then in Matthew 19, when the religious leaders come to Jesus and they say, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Do you hear what's in that question? They're baiting him. They're saying, Jesus... Are you on Team Halal or Team Shammai? Jesus, we want 
to test your orthodoxy by how you answer one theological question. You ever experienced that before? Okay, we want to test your orthodoxy here on one question. They're trying to trap him. What's your tribe? What's your team? Jesus. And here's Jesus' teaching on divorce. Matthew 5. It's short. It's quoting Deuteronomy 24. I don't think this is an in-depth teaching on divorce. I think what's happening in this text is Jesus, first of all, is wading into a very specific debate of his day, which we just looked at here. He's essentially saying, I'm with Shammai on this one. Often Jesus was with Hillel. Uh, But he says, no, I'm, I'm with Shammai on this one. And in doing so, he's fulfilling Deuteronomy 24. He comes into a patriarchal society. He comes to the aid of women to restore their dignity, agency, and equality. Jesus places himself really clearly on the side of the, the, the weaker one here in this power struggle. He's with the underdogs. He's with the oppressed. And he's the first one to make men responsible for adultery. See, historically and presently, often... Uh, a man's lust gets projected onto a woman. And Jesus says, no, the root of lust is not in her outfit, it's in your heart. You take responsibility. (laughs) Jesus calls times up for patriarchal systems, uh, especially religious ones that exploit women, that use religion, that use scripture to freeze women, to, to perpetuate gross power imbalances. Jesus times up, and he's confronting, in a male-dominated society, mostly men. I mean, but it applies to all of us, to take responsibility for my own heart. But he's confronting men, and he's confronting this movement. Contempt plus consumption leads to objectification when you can reduce a person to an object It's easier to oppress them. So if there was any question then about what God thinks about misogyny, it's really clear. Giant no. If there's any question about using scripture and religion to somehow reduce a woman from being fully equal, having a full agency, dignity, giant no. And for those of you, may, you may think that's pr- fairly obvious. Yeah, like, yeah, of course. But it still needs to be said. <laughs> it needs to be said, particularly this week. This week, the largest evangelical denomination, 15 million people, the Southern Baptist denomination, fired uh, a primary leader, and it took a long time to do, but uh, it had come out in the last couple weeks, This man had been giving a lot of counsel to women who were in abusive relationships to stay. To stay, to endure the abuse. To stay and to pray so that their husbands might be changed. Put the onus on the women to stay. There's a lot of uh, really awful things uh, that I don't want to repeat in a sermon. And at first the denomination just used, used the president at a a very large seminary. They demoted him to president emeritus, which isn't really a demotion. And finally, more stories. Women were brave enough to come forward, and so they, uh, at long last, took a stand and fired him. As one author I read said, Jesus' words about divorce were intended to protect women who were being exploited by the system. That they may have been turned into legalistic laws that often harm women is a tragedy. A marriage is not more sacred than the people in it. Sometimes divorce is the right choice. That needs to be said. And so just to put a little finer point on it. It is often said, because it's in the scripture in Malachi, that God hates divorce. It needs to be said that God hates abuse more. Okay? It's, it's often said, you could say, God opposes the dissolution of marriages, but God opposes oppression and the objectification of people more. So as we continue here and trying to understand what Jesus is, 
is on a boat and what he's doing, the first thing is he's, he is saying no, no oppression. A very radical at our time, at his time, and I think uh, very needed in ours. It's a good word. Second thing Jesus does, actually I should tell you this, this week when I was praying for this message, praying for many things, but one of the things I was praying for in which God didn't answer was uh, that the Spirit would give me more jokes. Uh, I just, I was just, come Holy Spirit, I need jokes, and I just didn't get them. Um, so we're going to stick with Scripture. Uh, Matthew 19 here, uh, in Matthew 19 we, we see the second thing Jesus is doing, and he, he's holding up the ideal. He's holding up an ideal. So he gets baited into this, this uh, debate. They're trying to lure Jesus into this legal technicality game. And Jesus doesn't fall on it. And he essentially says, you're, you're asking the wrong questions. You're debating on how you can feel justified in divorcing your spouse when you need to remember God's intentions for marriage. And this is verse 4. He says, haven't you read that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female and said, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Jesus takes them past Deuteronomy 24 to Genesis 2, where we see God's creational intent, his ideal. God created marriage for equal dignity, for permanent union, for the conferring of delight, for the giving of love. It's about reciprocity. And, and the, this mystery, it's, it's so hard to describe, and so the image we have is of one flesh. It's a bizarre kind of math where one plus one equals a new one. And, and so Jesus is holding this up, the purpose of marriage. And I think it's also important to say, if, if the church often... Uh, critiques the wider culture of making too little of marriage, then it can be equally said that the church creates an idol out of marriage. Marriage is a good thing. It's not an ultimate thing. You do not need marriage to be a full human being. If you're not married, you're not half or less than. Uh, period. <laughs> that needs to be said. Marriage is a good thing. Jesus is holding it up as an ideal. The point is to put on display the faithful love of God. To, to enjoy it, and to receive it, and to give it, and, and to make that visible in your spheres. So what Jesus is saying, look, you can't be justified in divorcing your wife because it all involves hardness of heart. Divorce is actually a break from God's ideal, and therefore it is sin. Sin means, you may know Greek, harmatia means to miss the mark, archery term. It's outside of the bullseye. So here's God's ideal, one flesh, one plus one equals one. You can't divide one without making fractions. And so he's holding up no, this one. Anything outside of the bullseye is sin. And the fact that you're having this debate, which continues on to today, the debate uh, shows that you have hard hearts when what you should be asking is, how do we aspire to God's ideal of intimacy and a one-flesh union, rather than how can I be justified in getting out of that ideal? So two different trajectories. So God's ideal, one-flesh, relationship for life. And if you want to play the self-righteous legal technicality game, then you ought to measure yourself up actually with God's ideal. Has your life or your marriage missed the mark in any ways of presenting God's faithful love? Yeah. Mine has. I don't know about you, but my story is, is one. My story is a string of broken promises and failed commitments. Uh, that, that is my story. And so to somehow try and elevate yourself over other people is a kind of self-righteousness that Jesus is trying to expose. And my conviction, I'm telling you, this is my view on this text, is that Jesus' goal is to expose oppression 
and the self-righteousness of a religious system, he is not saying that a divorced man or woman cannot get remarried. Why do I think that? Because he's quoting Deuteronomy 24, which assumed a woman is going to have to get remarried. And in fact, the certificate was to enable her to do so. And Jesus actually puts the pressure on the man in this male-dominated society saying, if you divorce a woman, you, you cause her to make adultery. So if you really want to be in the legal technicality game, this is what you're doing. Okay? So you, you may say, yeah, but what about the, what's known as the exception clause, where Jesus says, you know, for any reason but infidelity or uh, sexual immorality. Very quickly, that word, uh, I could really use a joke right now. I don't have one. Okay, that, that word is pornea, which, which means uh, like an illegitimate form of sexual intercourse. And why, so why is pornea a reason for divorce? Well, it, it uh, shatters that one flesh union. It's a rupture. It's a painful rupture of this one flesh bond. Is, is Jesus saying then that you have to get divorced? No. If there's adultery, can a marriage recover from that? Yes. So, okay, but when is divorce okay? That's often what we want to get to. And I've clarified that it is okay in situations of abuse. We also see Scripture wrestling with this question. 1 Corinthians 7, Apostle Paul is dealing with the issue of a divorce, and he says... So if some, one of you becomes a believer, you become a follower of Jesus, and your spouse is not a believer, what do you do then? So that was a question. Can, can we divorce then? He says, well, if, if you're a believer, don't leave the person. Don't divorce. But if they're an unbeliever and they don't want to be married to you and they want to get a divorced, divorce, then, um, the, you know, that's okay. And would that person then, by remarrying, would they be in a position of adultery? Paul says no. So that's 1 Corinthians 7, if you want to look that up. But here we've, here we've got, in the New Testament, I guess an expansion of Jesus' teaching. Uh, the, what's often called the exception clause perhaps isn't just a one exception clause. We've got an expansion. So what about our time? What do we do with physical, sexual, emotional abuse? We've talked about that. What about addictions or gross irresponsibility. Do not these things strike at the one flesh. So ultimately, Jesus cites grounds for divorce being the hardness of the human heart. Let's just pause here. A couple things. A couple pastoral words to come up for air here. We've looked at two things Jesus is doing in this text He's confronting particularly religious systems, but any systems uh, that oppress women. And the second thing is he's holding up the ideal of one flesh uh, vision for, for marriage. Let's just pause here as we consider divorce. And we just want to, as we've already noted, for 4,000 years, people have been wrestling with the complexities of divorce. Okay? So it's no surprise then that we're wrestling with it as well. We all wrestle. Even maybe in this room, there may be questions, how long do I hang in there? Or questions like, when am I out of line to pursue divorce? And when is divorce really my only option? Or what do you do when you want to put it back together? And maybe you've tried to put it back together for the sake of the kids, but it feels like the heart of the thing is just so fractured that you can't figure out where those puzzle pieces go what happens when the person apologizes? They actually say never again, and then never again happens again? Where there's the appearance of reconciliation? What, what do you do then? What, when do you stay together for the kids, and when do you say that the best thing for the kids is to separate? It's complex. Yeah? We wrestle with this. People have wrestled with this for thousands of years. Therefore, we tread with humility with compassion. And another note is that we're, I believe the tradition, what we've inherited from Jesus, 
We're always for fidelity, for endurance, for reconciliation and peace as long as it is possible. Just always about those things. So fidelity, always about fidelity. It's just like, it's a no to cheating. It's a no to that being okay. I I told you I had two quotes. Here's the second one. Wendell Berry, what marriage offers and what fidelity is meant to protect is the possibility of moments when what we have chosen and what we desire are the same. Such a convergence obviously cannot be continuous. No relationship can continue very long at its highest emotional pitch. But fidelity prepares us for the return of these moments, which give us the highest joy we can know, that of union, communion, atonement, in the root sense of at-one-ment. I want to see faithfulness. This is the point, is to put on display the faithfulness of God. I want to see endurance. The point of marriage, even though we're often told this, is ultimately not to make you happy, but to make you whole, to make you holy. And so if your marriage is not currently making you happy, that is not reason to divorce. There is a word that's needed to stay, to endure. I hope I've made it clear we're not talking about enduring abuse. But there is a word that's needed to endure, to stay, to work on it. Maybe you've been coasting for years. You've been driving parallel. One of the things Amy's brought into our marriage, she read early in, was it a severe mercy? Yeah, the phrase, beware of the creeping separateness. Beware of the creeping separateness. And so that's kind of been code for us. Hey, we're, starting, we're getting distant here. You're feeling cold. I feel you going. I feel pushing away. I feel like we've been just parallel lives and there's not an, enough connection points. Beware the creeping separateness. It takes work, so we need endurance. Reconciliation. We, we want this and we hold out hope that this is possible. We want to see estrangement move towards intimacy. Again, this takes work. And it should be said that if, if those of you right now are in need of marriage counseling, let us know. There's no shame in that, in that need. Amy and I have been to marriage counseling. Uh, and so if you're in need of it, if you need help, you don't have benefits, or your benefits have run out, let us know. We want to help you. If we can support you in doing the work, we want to do that. I, I think it needs to be said that if, um, if it feels like the cement is dried, if, the, if there's a layer of contempt that has completely paved the garden of your marriage, there is the possibility for that cement to be cracked. It, 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 and I, I know some of your marriages, I know enough married people to know that is possible. That is some of your stories where you can say, I, I actually am in a resurrected marriage. But we were sure it was dead. So this needs to be said as well this morning. The cement has cracked and been rolled back before. And it is possible. We hold out that hope for reconciliation. I remember when I was in my early 20s, one of my close friends, his parents divorced. And because I was close with the family, this was devastating. Uh, I couldn't believe it. Couldn't believe this was happening in this family. And at the same time, I was living with a guy who actually had the same name as my friend, so that was an uncanny parallel, who over, once we were eating together and he told me the story of his parents' marriage, who went through a separation and divorce. It was done. And at this moment, they were now, they were actually starting to date again. And they ended up getting remarried. So you married, you divorced, and you remarried the same person. That's such a wild tale. And I so wanted that for my friend. And so I de- this is kind of a strange commitment you don't need to know about, but I'll tell you anyway. I decided every time I'm in the shower, uh, I just picked something that I was going to do every day. Every time I'm in the shower, I'm going to pray for that story in this marriage. And I prayed for years. I would lay down in the shower sometimes uh, crying 
pleading with God to resuscitate, to crack the cement of contempt, to let the, the flowers of intimacy grow again. And it didn't happen. And so we hold this tension, reconciliation and peace. And sometimes that miracle happens and we hope for it, we pray for it. And the realism that sometimes it doesn't. And so we hold this tension, I think, both a profound respect for marriage as well as the reality that some things die. So divorce happens. It is a form of death. It is time-consuming. It can be expensive and devastating. Divorce can create new challenges. But divorce is not the unforgivable sin. It does not make a person damaged goods or less than, and it is not always necessarily the end. One more word for our community. The story of any marriage, any marriage, is not simple, and it's multi-layered, and as far as I know, most marriages take two people, and that means at least there's two stories, there's two versions of the story. And then you add in, you've got brothers, and you've got co-workers, and you've got parents. And so now you've got 12 stories. And then somewhere in there is the truth that nobody has a handle on. And so what do we often do as bystanders in these cases? What, what do we usually feel the pressure to do? Pick a side. Find fault. Choose your team. I think there, there's respect that's needed to to admit that there's more going on than you know and more than even they understand. Okay, here's the thing. I used to have all the answers and right ideas about parenting before I was a parent. I was actually expert level uh, judging people's parenting before I had a kid. And then you know what happens. You enter an experience. I had kids and I realized I'm not an expert and I actually have no clue what I'm doing. And that's what genuine experience does. You find out how much you don't know. So can I just submit to us, as we grow as a church, and as we experience people in this community wading through the waters of divorce, can we hold this with humility, assuming that you do not know very much? You're not an expert. And that divorce is already painful enough without the condemnation and judgment of religious people. Cool? Let's practice that. If we're going to practice the way of Jesus, let's do that. I was talking to a friend this week who's a counselor. And they said this, those who go through divorce do so because of the greatest pains of their lives. No one wakes up in the morning and decides to be divorced. It is the accumulation of harmful experiences and poor decisions. And for many people, it is the urge to be more than they have become. So Jesus confronts oppression. He holds up the ideal. And the third thing that Jesus does is that he brings the faithfulness. If you're a follower of Jesus, this is the arrangement. You bring the infidelity. He brings the faithfulness. You bring the sin. He brings the forgiveness. You bring the waywardness, he brings the steadfastness. And being a Christian, a follower of Jesus, is to live in that relationship, in his faithfulness, and to receive it, and for it to increasingly become your way in the world. So last night at, at the dinner table, it uh, was shared that some of our kids, don't judge me, all of which own iPods or iPhones, uh, that some of the, one kid said that when they get really mad at mom, they delete her contact in the phone. <laughs> and I said, what, you do that? And they said, yep. And another kid says, I do that too. It's like, wow. So that's a thing. You're so mad. You want, you want that estrangement. You want, I want to be separated. And here's the thing. The, we laughed because... We know the relationship holds. Their commitment to mom, it can end. They can do their worst, and the relationship holds. They bring the delete button, and she just brings the presence. I just keep showing up. (laughs) 
So, so in all of our relationships then, is to relate inside the faithful, unending. The poets say, your love endures forever. Like it just doesn't stop. To live in that love. When you run out of it, it's to receive more of it. When you reject it, it's to, for it to keep coming after you. Another scripture says, if we are faithless, he remains faithful for he cannot disown himself. This is, a, a, sorry, an undivorceable God. This is what Jesus brings to all of us who miss the mark. Unending, enduring faithfulness. And this is what ours is then to learn and practice in marriage. To receive that and in our most fledgling, maybe even through our teeth moments, to give some of that back. And it is those of us who are single and who are being reworked in the family of God to learn how to practice faithfulness to one another, to practice faithfulness to one another's marriages. Why? Because even though marriage isn't an ultimate thing, it's a good thing. Now let's, yeah, let's take a moment here to do some gossiping. Because Scott and Aubin McTaggart aren't here. <laughs> so let's just talk about why honoring their marriage would be a good thing. Just this last week, they were celebrating their seventh year of being in Vancouver. Moving from Langley here. And let's think about how many of us have been through their home. Some of us have gone through premarital counseling. Some of us have sat at their picnic tables. This is a marriage, a couple who have contended for their marriage, who fought for it. And the result of that, man, is just so much blessing for people. It's a family who chose to put their picnic table in the front yard so they can invite more neighbors to it. Uh, we, we all, and if you haven't yet, let's get a sign-up sheet. I'll, we'll sign you up for dinner at their house, okay? Because <laughs> actually, at least Scott would love that, I think, for sure. Um, okay, so we'll, that's the other sign-up we got to get. Uh, I'm not kidding. Let's do that. Um, if you don't know McTaggers, let's get you over to their house for dinner. And uh, because that marriage has, man, what a blessing faithful love, not just between them and not just to their kids, but expanding beyond them and multiplying out into the world. How good is that? Okay, one last story. This is one of my classics. If you've been around, you've heard it way too many times, but uh, when I was praying for jokes, I got this story, and so I'm going to take a risk on sharing this overshared story. Okay. Last, uh, no, let's, yeah, let's go to the next slide. Okay. Okay. My kids, this was a number of years ago. Kids ran away from home. I I just got to know, how many of you have heard me tell this? Okay, I've told a bunch. (laughs) Okay, only half. Oh, right now I feel better. Okay. So, a number of years ago, my kids run from home. And Elijah, was, our oldest, was mad about something and declared, let's get out of here, let's run away. The conditions in the Odegaard home apparently were unbearable. And so they went to the bedroom and they came out and they announced that they'd be leaving. Here they are announcing. Uh, it's got a tent rolled up under the arm, walking stick. And so Amy asked them, where are you going to go and how long are you going to be away and have you packed a bag? And they said, well, I don't know where we're going. Just somewhere else, somewhere not here. And someone said, we're going to the Dutch. That was the one uh, restaurant they knew how to get to. And so they said they would be com- they'd come back at times, possibly for Mother's Day and likely May long weekend, <laughs> which is both in May, so which is great. So it's just those two. So they got their bags, they got a tent, they packed some nuts, sunscreen, and Band-Aids. And uh, they said, farewell. Amy takes their pictures, and Eva gives them a long-knowing look into mom's eyes, knowing this will be the last time they see one another. And they go down to Marche St. George, their little coffee shop in the neighborhood, and they write farewell notes to some of the neighbors. And they write one here to the barista, to Clee, I'm leaving, bye, dear Clee, to Clee, love, Eva. And they turned, and they... They got to the threshold of the door, and apparently Eva turned around and said, we are looking for adventure in the great wide somewhere. 
And so they, they set off. They're done. They're leaving and separating. And Amy begins tracking. She follows at a distance, hanging back so they won't actually see her. She's trailing a block behind. She's hiding behind telephone poles and ducking behind cars. Thankfully, their journey is very slow and haphazard. Eventually, they notice that Amy is following them, and at first, they're angry. Their independence is gone. She's encroaching. Her nearness is an intrusion, and the whole point is finding something outside of this relationship, outside of this home. I want adventure in the great somewhere, wide somewhere. And Amy tells them that she was actually going to Main Street to buy bus tickets so that she could go to the beach. Anders, the youngest, is immediately swayed by this option, decides, yeah, the beach sounds good. But the older two are not convinced, and so Amy keeps tracking them. And Anders says, a mom wouldn't let her four-year-old and six-year-olds go away on their own. Amy explains that she's been following you, following them. And the reason she's following him is that she wanted to have a fun adventure too. She was in for adventure and she told them that she'd been spying and they liked that. And so they had a little snack on the sidewalk. It's a little high-end San Pellegrino there in the water bottle. A high-end snack for kids. But eventually the kids agreed to also they would accompany mom to the beach. But they said, we're going to be setting up our tent far from you. Grudges are not given up quickly for these two. And so they set up their tent in the far reaches of Yale Town. And they do the normal things. They explore. They throw rocks in the ocean. They share more stacks. Eventually they find the playground at David Lamb Park. And though it's getting closer to bedtime, Amy decides we've got to move bedtime. We're on an adventure after all. And eventually it comes time to make the trek back home through Yale Town. And they ride the Canada line back up to Mount Pleasant. Now their tents folded up and under their arms. Finally, they're ready to come back home. And that evening as they were sitting around the table, Eva prayed for dinner, for their very late dinner. And part of her prayer was this, Thank you, God, for my glorious and sneaky mother. And I love this story because it's a conversion story of estrangement to coming home. And the way that move happens of coming home is through pursuit, through faithful pursuit. Though you leave, I'm coming after you. And this is the relationship in Christ. If, if you want to live in this relationship, if you want to say yes to it again and again, this is what you're in for. Dogged pursuit and then for this become your way in the world as well. Dogged pursuit. Jesus brings the faithfulness. Which is why we come to this table. And just like on that first night where he instituted this meal. This meal is for deniers and betrayers. It's for those with infidelity in their history. Which Jesus reveals as he brings the inside outside in the Sermon on the Mount is actually all of us. So we come to this table to be welcomed, to come home again, to receive his faithfulness. Uh, and if we dare to allow that to touch our particular areas of unfaithfulness, not just our good parts, but actually our worst. That's what's possible this morning at this table. And so I want to invite you to come this morning.